some that I've never taken the time. Every year, I have probably at least one person that might make a passing comment, ask me a question, something about Christmas. And I've never really taken the time to stand in the pulpit and talk extensively about Christmas itself. Not Jesus and the manger and all that, but just the, the holiday of Christmas. And so I thought I would do that this year. Uh, the North American church seems to put a lot of focus on two specific religious holidays. You know what those are? Christmas and Easter. However, some Christians, including some apostolics, view these celebrations in a very negative light. Now, if you don't know this, you're like, what? Well, let's take a look why. Um, now, let me just go ahead and preface everything I'm going to say, because I'm going to start to talk about the history of Christmas. Do not get up and walk out and be like, oh, Lord help us. He's against Christmas now. I'm not, but I need to just give you a little bit of background so that we're all educated in this if we're not already. And so just sit tight and wait till the end. Don't make assumptions. But they're concerned about the pagan origins and overtones of these two specific holidays. Uh, so tonight my goal is not to try to convince anyone of anything. I'm not trying to convince someone to do or not do something. I simply want to take a look at scripture and history as we prepare for the holiday season. And my title tonight is Christianity and Christmas. Christianity and Christmas. So many people, they'll say things like, oh, the history of Christmas, and yeah, I know you know the history of Christmas, but I would venture to say that a lot of them could not actually explain to you what the history of Christmas is. We just kind of have heard it through the years and we refer to the history of Christmas. Well, I thought, you know what? Let's go ahead and educate ourselves. Let's grab the bull by the horn, so to speak. What, a, what, a, what an interesting term. And I don't suggest ever actually doing that. But look at the brief history of Christmas, all right? So the origins. The origins of Christmas stem from both pagan and Roman cultures, okay? The Romans actually celebrated two holidays in the month of December. The first was Saturnalia, which was a two-week festival honoring the god of agriculture, Saturn. On December 25th, they celebrated the birth of Mithra, their sun god. Both celebrations were raucous, drunken parties. As Christianity spread across Europe, the Christian clergy were not able to curb the pagan customs and celebrations. Since no one knew for sure the date of Jesus' birth, they adapted the pagan ritual into the celebration of his birthday. Now, what about Christmas trees? Well, as part of their, the solstice celebrations, the pagan cultures decorated their homes with greens in anticipation of the spring to come. Evergreen trees remained green during the coldest and darkest days, so they were thought to hold special powers. In case you thought they did, they don't. <laughs> the Romans also decorated their temples with fir trees during Saturnalia, and decorated them with bits of metal. There are even records of the Greeks decorating their trees in honor of their gods. Interestingly, the first trees brought into pagan homes were hung from the ceiling upside down. Does anybody have a tree hung from the ceiling upside? Because if you do, that's interesting. <laughs> now you're like, even if I did, I wouldn't raise my hand right now. <laughs> But the tree tradition we are accustomed to hails from Northern Europe, 
where Germanic pagan tribes decorated evergreen trees in worship of the god Woden with candles and dried fruit. The tradition was incorporated into Christian faith in Germany during the 1500s, and you kind of connect Reformation time, and it's interesting, but they decorated trees in their homes with sweets, lights, and toys. What about Santa Claus? Santa, just, that's the same letters as Satan. It has nothing to do with anything. Inspired by St. Nicholas, the Christmas tradition has Christian roots rather than pagan ones. You know, you ever sit there and say, you ever listen to the song? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. I'm like, yeah, you know, that sounds familiar. Born in southern Turkey around 280, he was a bishop in the early Christian church and suffered persecution and imprisonment for his faith. Coming from a wealthy family, he was renowned for his generosity towards the poor and disenfranchised. The legends surrounding him abound, so we're not for sure, but the most famous is how he saved three daughters from being sold into slavery. There was no dowry to entice a man to marry them, so it was their father's last resort. Well, St. Nicholas is said to have tossed gold through an open window into their home, thus saving them from their fate. Legend has it that the gold landed in a sock drying by the fire, so children started hanging stockings by the fires in hopes that St. Nicholas would toss gifts in them. In honor of his passing, December 6th was declared St. Nicholas Day, and that's why in some homes you still will, oh, you get your stockings filled with candy and goodies and all that. If you want to give me a stocking, December 6th is passed, I'll take it, fill it with gold, it'll be fun. <laughs> As time went on, each European culture adapted versions of St. Nicholas. In Swiss and German cultures, Christkind or Christ Kringle, Christ Child, accompanied St. Nicholas to deliver presents to well-behaved children. Jolt, I don't even know how to pronounce that. Joltmanton was a happy elf delivering gifts via a sleigh drawn by goats in Sweden. Then there was Father Christmas in England and Pierre Noel in France. In the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Lorraine, France, and parts of Germany, he was known as Sinterklaas. Claus, for the record, is a shortened version of the name Nicholas. And this is where Americanized Santa Claus comes from because as people, American became, uh, depending on what you say, melting pot, tossed salad, whatever they're saying these days, okay? As you had people coming in from other countries, they brought their traditions and beliefs with them. And so Christmas in America, in, it, in early America, it was a mixed bag. Many with Puritan beliefs banned Christmas because of its pagan origins and the raucous nature of the celebrations. Other immigrants arriving from Europe continued with their customs and their beliefs of their homeland. The Dutch brought Sinterklaas with them to New York in the 1600s. The Germans brought their tree traditions with them in the 1700s. And that's why you got people with names like Dornbach. Each celebrated their own way within their communities. It wasn't until the early 1800s that American Christmas began to take shape. Washington Irving wrote a series of stories of a wealthy English landowner who invites his workers to have dinner with him. 
Irving liked the idea of people of all backgrounds and social statuses coming together on a single plane for a festive holiday. So he told the tale that reminisced about old Christmas traditions that had been lost but were restored by a wealthy landowner. Through Irving's story, the idea began to take hold in the hearts of American public. And in 1822, Clement Clark Moore wrote an account of a visit from St. Nicholas for his daughters. It's now famously known as The Night Before Christmas. The Night Before Christmas, but all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. In it, the modern idea of Santa Claus as a jolly man flying through the sky with a sleigh took hold. Later in 1881, the artist Thomas Nast was hired to draw a depiction of Santa for a Coca-Cola advertisement. He created a rotund Santa with a wife named Mrs. Claus with worker elves. After this, the image of Santa as a cheerful, fat, white-bearded man in a red suit became embedded in American culture. Oh, the power of advertising. After the Civil War, the country was looking for ways to look past differences, become united as a country. You gotta imagine, people coming, we declare our independence, 1776, people are coming, we're a melting pot, people are coming in from, from all, all immigrants from every which way, bringing cultures and customs from their homeland, and, and then the, the, the uh, Civil War takes place, 1860s, and in 1870, President Ulysses S. Grant declared it a federal holiday. And while Christmas traditions have adapted with time, I think Washington Irving's desire for unity of the celebration still lives on. Christmas is now a time of year where we wish others well, donate to our favorite charities, and give presents with a joyful spirit. And at, for the most part, it brings a unity in our country unlike any other time of the year. But what about the ties to pagan cultures and worship? What do we do with that? Well, here's the best answer that I can give you. You must follow your own conviction on that. How do you like that? If you feel like you should not celebrate Christmas or have a Christmas tree or exchange presents, then you should follow your conviction. And if you do not have a conviction about this, then go ahead and enjoy the season. The Apostle Paul talks in his letters regularly about Christian liberty. So, as you can imagine, varying opinions, strong opinions, did not start in 2000s. That started probably the moment that Adam was created and spoke into existence and formed from the dust of the ground, okay? Romans 14, even back then, believe it or not, there were strong opinions. Read with me. It says in Romans 14, 1, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, a pagan culture, and says, accept other believers who are weak in the faith. Don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. By the way, pause, go back to verse 1. You probably could find a lot of messages just on every one of these verses. That right there is a great message and one you should take with you to social media. 
For instance, one person believes it's right to eat anything. Hallelujah. But another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Poor soul. (laughs) Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants at that point? Their own master will judge them whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day. While others think that every day is alike. You should be fully convinced that whatever day you choose is acceptable. You know, some people even today... Oh, you, you worship on the Sabbath. If you're not a Sabbath church, a Sabbath-keeping church, well, that's a whole other story. But we, the Sabbath is a type of rest that pointed the Holy Ghost. It was a refreshing. We, the Bible, we do not have to keep a literal Sabbath worship on Saturday, do all that. And it says, hey, whatever day you choose is acceptable. Scripture. Those who worship the Lord on a special day, do it to honor him. Those who eat any kind of food, do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks To God before eating. By the way, if you ever wanted to know, well, where's this scripture? Why do I need to pray before I eat it? There you go, right there. Stop eating your food before you pray and saying, thank God. Where are the kids? They need to be up here. And it says, uh, since they gave thanks, and those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. So you got people that are doing certain things to please God, people that are refraining from things to please God. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. If we die, it's to honor the Lord. Everything we do, whether to die or live, it's to honor the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord of both the living and the dead. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we all stand, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Again, this passage is, it's, if we could put a terminology in, it's Christian liberty. This means that not... All issues are moral. Now, this does not mean that I can say, you know what? Adultery is fine. No, there's a moral issue that Scripture specifically deals with in that. We can't just be like, you know what? Killing's fine. It's fine if they get me mad enough at least. No, no, there's a moral principle, and Scripture clearly condemns that. And so, where the Bible does not give explicit teaching that something is sin or not sin, that means we have Christian liberty to make choices. And that's part of the reason God fills you with his spirit, too, is you're going to find that as you serve God, he's going to start to deal with you on things. I do not stand in this pulpit and preach all of my convictions because... Some of my convictions are based on scriptural, they're they're all based on scriptural principles, but there are certain things that I do or choose to do that God does not say, thou shalt not, thou must, and I say, I'm going to choose to refrain from doing this. And even when I teach discipleship courses, I'll say, hey, let me tell you why in our house, this is what we choose to do. I'm not going to tell you, you have to do it just like me. Now, when Scripture says, thou shalt, I'm going to get up and say, I don't care what culture and society says, thou shalt, and we must do it. I mean, Scripture says that. But where it does not, then I'm going to say, hey, here's why we do this. Here's, here's what I'm asking. There's, there's, I, I stood in front of the praise team one time and said, hey, there's not a scriptural concept to what I'm talking to you about tonight. However, this is what I'm asking you to do, and here's why I'm asking you to do it. I'm not saying it's a scriptural thing, but here's why I'm asking you to do this. 
So I will clarify the difference there. Um, so thank God that he says, I'm going to put my spirit in you. Why? Not just to get me to heaven, have a prayer language, but so that each day you're going to find that as you serve God, you might be doing something right now that's totally fine. And a year from now, all of a sudden you're feeling like a, a conviction about it. And you feel like God's spirit is leading you away from something or towards something. You need to follow that. But in following it, if it's not totally clearly labeled in scripture, then you don't say, well, God's led me to do this and bless God. I'm going to go find a new church because all you heathens aren't doing it. No, follow the conviction of the Holy Spirit that God is laying on your heart. But don't force it down someone else's throat if it's not, even if it is in the scripture, don't force it down someone's throat. But understand that, that there's Christian liberty. When you read the entire chapter of Romans 14, you'll see we occasionally have different choices on matters. But the Apostle Paul says we still need to respect one another. Our church did a masterful job at this throughout covid I heard some horror stories in a handful of churches, and some of you thought that we gathered too early. Well, others thought we should have never shut down. Some thought we should have stayed in masks, while others said we should have never required masks. Some have made personal choices to get vaccinated, and others say, I'm not doing it. None of these personal opinions or choices are evil or sinful. You might have very strong opinions on them. Even now, I'm like, ooh, he's stepping out on the thin ice. Did he just talk about vaccines? We should be able to worship with someone who has a different opinion than us. And we have done just that. I don't know of anyone who has left this church in the last three years because of something that someone, you don't do this, you do this, we don't require this, we require this, you personally did this, and they, no, the Bible does not address some of these things clearly, so we have Christian liberty. If you come ask me, say, what's your personal opinion? I will be happy to share. You have not heard me say my personal opinion on masks and vaccines and all these because this is not the place for that. If you want to have a private conversation with me outside of here, I will gladly talk to you about that. I'm not ashamed of that. But for here, it's not clearly stated in Scripture. So there's Christian liberty. And everybody is trying to do what's best for them and their children and their family. And so for me to say, you should or shouldn't, you get to choose. And I respect you for whatever choice you make, even if it's different than mine. Another issue that appeared to be very tense, had a wide range of opinions, is that of eating meat previously offered to idols. Paul had already addressed this with the Colossian church in Colossians 2.16. He says, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. There it is. Again, Sabbath, he addresses it. Children of God used to not be able to eat red meat, but then God gave Peter a vision and said, go kill any. He's like, I'm not going to kill any. What God's He's like, what the Lord has made clean, don't call it unclean. And from that day forward, we got to eat filet mignon. And the church said, amen. 
People that say, I would have loved to live in the Old Testament. Forget that noise. I'd love to live any time after Peter's vision. (laughs) But now there's a discussion about meat offered to idols. And you could imagine people in the church did not just say, hey, whatever you decide, we're fine with it. There were some opinions. So 1 Corinthians 8, now regarding your question, well, some of you obviously asked, this is Paul's letter, the first letter he writes to this church in the city of Corinth, another pagan culture. He says, now in regard to your question, you obviously asked me this, this is a response to you, it's been offered food to offered idols. Yes, we know we all have knowledge about the issue, but while knowledge makes us feel important, there's a whole message. While knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. And this is why we've been able to do well even through COVID. I'll even go back to that scary topic of the vaccine. Some of you have done research, and some of you are sitting here going, I have research. You should get a vaccine. I have research. You should not get a vaccine. And you have, I'm sure, both sides. But at the end of the day, that's not worth separating from your brothers and sisters in Christ over. It's love that strengthens the church. And so anyone who claims to know all the answers, Paul says, doesn't really know that very much. Oh, woo, that's a good word right there. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. We just need to memorize that, Bible quizzers, right there. (laughs) According to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, who does not really know that much? But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god. There's only one god. This is not... Surprising. He says, come on, Corinthian church. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and in earth, and some people actually worship gods and many lords. But for us, there's one God. There's a oneness of God passage. The Father by whom all things were created for whom we live. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods and their conscience, their weakness, their weak consciousness, consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it. We don't gain anything if we do. Well, we do gain something now if we do eat too much finding that out in my 40s, but you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge, (laughs) eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you're sinning against Christ. Whoa, okay. 
So if what I eat causes another to believe, believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Paul's interest in planting churches all over the place, so he's like, hey, I realize that there is a, that I can eat anything I want. I have that liberty, but not all things are expedient. I have liberty, I have, I have freedoms, I can choose what I want to do. But for me, as a church leader, as a church planner who's trying to do these things, I know that this is something I'm going to choose to stay away from. Notice, Paul never says, Corinthian church, nobody should do this. He says, for me, I'm going to make a choice that I'm not going to do this. And here's why I'm making that choice. And so he makes a couple of really, really interesting points in this passage. Number one, love is the most important thing in the church. Love God, love others. There's nothing more important than that. That is the most important thing in the church. Yeah, but what about truth? What about doctrine? That's going to come, absolutely, and that's born out of love. Number two, eating food that was offered to an idol does not make the idol real or take any power from God. Because I ate a steak that was offered to an idol does not mean now, oh my goodness, now God's lost all power and this idol's powerful. He says, though, number three, God gave us permission to eat what we want. We don't gain or lose God's approval by anything we eat. The scripture. Number four, he says, we, have, we must be aware of those watching us who could be destroyed by our actions. So everything you do, you have to be aware, we have to be aware that, hey, is something that I have Christian liberty to do, could that cause someone to fall? And so I have to always be aware in my choices, okay? And I've had conversations with leaders in this church that there are things I'm gonna stay in this pulpit and preach that are moral, that are godly, the scripture line and verse for those things. But then when somebody says, hey, I want to be a ministry director, okay, well, there are certain things we're asking you to do that are still in Scripture, but there might be even one or two things that I'm saying, this is not Scripture, but as a leader, we're going to ask you to align with this. And then when you become a department head, and you're leading whole departments and, and, and people and facilitating small groups and doing these things, we may say, okay, we're asking you, here's the scriptural stuff that's clearly laid out. But in addition to Scripture, there are some things that we ask of leaders here. Why? Because, as they would say, water doesn't rise higher than its source. So if, if, if you're in a leadership role, if, if, if rich and gender and leadership roles in children's ministry, if they're not spiritual people, if they're not setting the standard, the kids are not going to be like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more spiritual than my brother Rich. No, so there are certain things that we're going to ask you to do, even maybe that are not clearly lined out in Scripture, but we feel like, hey, this is a good idea to align with this principle. And so, as you step forward in leadership, there are things that you're realizing. I'm taking on responsibilities knowing that other people are watching. But notice there's Christian liberty with awareness to weaker vessels and then personal choice. Christian liberty, awareness to weaker vessels, and then personal choice. For Paul, he said he would never eat meat again, which probably means he would, I'm guessing, based on the way he wrote that, is he probably did eat meat. After all, he was the one arguing with Peter about trying to force Jewish customs on Gentiles. So he's going, hey, if this was the case, we don't even know. He didn't say, hey, there was an argument, and this guy did it, now I'm, not, now I'm sending my steak back. He's saying, hypothetically, if this is the case, and weaker vessels, if they could do this, if that's the case, then I'm never doing this again. 
He's saying, for me, my personal choice is if it causes someone to fall, I am, this is too crucial what I'm trying to do here to let something like this get in the way. 1 Corinthians 8, similar to Paul's attitude in Romans 14, is based on matters of personal convictions and Christian liberty. Christians individually may differ on matters of conscience and liberties. Christians may disagree on whether someone should eat meat or vegetables, or as I mentioned, get the vaccine or not. In Colossians 2, Paul is concerned in showing that salvation in Jesus Christ is far more superior to any of the false teachings surrounding them. Some of the teachings had been refuted. It was, it was legalism, uh, asceticism, mysticism. In fact, the book of Colossians, Paul refutes some of the false teachings claiming Christians need to give up physical enjoyments and worship angels and rely on worldly wisdom. He, he, he refutes all that in the Colossian, book of Colossians. In response, Paul explains why Christ is supreme and he's sufficient for salvation. Now, it's absolutely true, going back to Christmas, that Christmas and Easter have pagan undertones to them. But it's also true that many... See, I want to tell you that because <clears throat> if you're sitting here going, I love my Christmas tree and I love my lights, and no, they do not, now you kind of sound ignorant and unlearned when you say that. So when somebody says, yes, there's pagan undertones to Easter and Christmas, absolutely. You, you cannot refute that. It, it, it is. But here's the thing. There are many things in life that have pagan undertones. Roads were created by the pagan nation of Rome, yet we still choose to drive on them. <laughs> the days of the week that we use, Sunday, Monday, those are pagan terminologies. Pagan origins. Sunday was originally a name given to honor the sun god. What do you think Monday was? Honor the moon god. Thursday was to honor the Norse god of thunder named Thor. Now, if I'm using these days to honor the sun god, for instance, if I say, let's only meet on Sunday because it honors the sun god, well, then I would be guilty of idolatry and I need to repent. That's a big problem, and I shouldn't be your pastor. But if I'm just using Sunday as a cultural English expression to, to clarify a day in the week, a label, then neither, and neither you or I are taking that as I'm worshiping the sun god, and I have not done anything morally wrong. Now, if you think I am worshiping the sun god, we need to sit down and talk, and I can clarify that for you. But it's not a matter of sin, morality, or biblical truth. This is a matter of personal choice. People against Christmas have referenced a Christmas tree in the past and its ties to pagan roots. Well, if someone, who created the Christmas tree? Who created the tree? It's, it's God. God spoke. He put, he put the trees in the mountainside. It's not, so they have taken something God created and made it, made it pagan. And so if someone truly was bowing and worshiping before their tree, I have a problem with that. I have not heard of it taking place yet. But if you are gathering around and bowing down before your tree at night, we need to pray for you tonight before you leave because you're guilty of idolatry. Um, but if you're saying, regardless of the pagan connotations, I'm not doing this for any type of pagan worship or idolatry, then I do not believe you are living in sin. That being said, if you say, I have a conviction about this, you need to follow your conviction. But don't tell someone that there are no pagan origins, because there are. 
But when I personally get together with my family, I am celebrating the memory of what God did for us by taking on flesh and being born of a virgin. And when my family reads the Christmas story, we read about gifts brought to Jesus by the wise men, and he accepted those gifts. And the greatest gift giver of all time, Jesus Christ, gave us the gift of eternal life and of the Holy Ghost. And how fitting it is that in celebration of his birth, the greatest giver of all time, that I would exchange gifts with those I love most. My participation or decor in my house has nothing to do with a pagan or false god. I personally refuse to let idolatry steal something from me that I actually use to promote the message and spirit of Jesus Christ to my family and to this world. I've chosen that on this day I will celebrate the Lord. And for many in our world, Christmas and Easter are the only days that they step foot in a church. So by me standing up and going, don't ever celebrate Christmas, this pagan holiday, I'm actually going to lose my influence in the lives of some people that I only get a chance a couple times a year to really reach. If I start focusing on the pagan roots of these holidays, instead of doing like Paul referencing and referenced and knowing that any day can be made special to the Lord because he is the one with ultimate power and authority. I choose to transform that pagan day into something that is more acceptable and powerful. It reminds me of what Joseph told his brothers in the Old Testament. He said, hey, what you meant for evil, God's taken, used it for good. These holidays have pagan roots. But how much glory has Christ received because of Christmas and Easter? How many times have people stepped foot in church, been filled with his spirit, baptized in the name, because they heard about a cross? Yeah, but why do you do Easter eggs with candy afterward? You have a conviction about that? Don't participate. But for us, we're like, hey, we're going we're, we're to celebrate. The kids are going to have a blast. They're going to have a fun time. But I guarantee you, before they're going and grabbing and opening up an egg and eating a piece of chocolate, they're sitting in their classes learning about how Jesus Christ loved them. He died on a cross. He shed blood for them. He paid a price for them. You may say, well, I don't want to use the term Easter. That's fine. Then say Resurrection Sunday. If you don't feel like you can celebrate these holidays without focusing on paganism and idolatry, then stay away from them. Don't participate. I'm not trying to convince you to do to ignore your convictions. But if you feel like you can set aside these days as unto the Lord, and you can focus on the message of hope and salvation, you can focus on birth and resurrection, then go for it. I believe Scripture gives you all of that liberty. So as I close this out tonight. I think in, in the matter of Christmas, we must still allow Paul's writings to provide some guidance for us. First and foremost, remember that love in the church is the most important. Then we must acknowledge Christian liberty. And, sure, and it's, I'm talking about Christmas right now. But this is a principle you can take with you for all of the other issues that you're going to face over the next several years. I mean, think about it. Not only can black and white and brown and red, like not only can everybody, every skin tone, every socioeconomic background, we can all worship together, but we can also sit here 
and worship together as Democrats and Republicans. My Lord, as vaccinated and unvaccinated, all the all of the taboo topics that we do not bring up at Christmas and Thanksgiving. <laughs> and you can sit. You can say, you know what? We can focus on what divides us. Absolutely. And there's probably a lot. We probably have a lot of different opinions. But sometimes what unites us, and God can change people too, like, for the first time, Sister Rita gave me my first chief shirt. But this past week, I actually bought my first chief shirt on my own money. So maybe what divides us, maybe we're getting more united. I don't know. But what unites us is so much more powerful. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father and all, above all, who's in all and through all and in you all. If your personal choice is one of refraining from celebrating Christmas, then do so. Without contending for your personal belief or causing an innocent believer around you to experience discord because of your, your personal belief. If your personal choice is to celebrate Christmas, then do so. Without belittling someone who chooses to refrain because of how they were raised or personal convictions that they have. Whether you celebrate Christmas or not is not going to be the final straw that causes God to decide whether or not he's putting in you in heaven or hell. I promise you that. So don't let Christian liberty and personal choice keep you from connecting to the church. Don't let discord and disunity arise because of something like that or any personal choice. Again, I'm talking about Christmas. Most of you probably don't have any issue with it, but you live long enough and you're going to have people just come up and ask you questions. It's a good, good thing to educate yourself on. But it goes beyond just the topic of Christmas. It's any topic. Certainly where there's morality, where there's things, we can't have someone in leadership that's doing something the Bible clearly says is immoral or ungodly. But when it comes to personal Christian liberty, allow for it. Not everybody here is going to do things exactly the way you do them. You can still love them can still love them because love is the most important thing in the church of the living God. Amen? Would you stand and would you just let's just wrap up by finding a place to pray. I know it's about Christmas, but I think we could take an overarching theme of God. Help me not to contend for my personal beliefs when it's just Christian liberty. God, help me to love more. Help us to be united. And God, as we go into this season, Oh, yeah, there's pagan roots to that holiday. God, I pray that you would use this season to bring hope to humanity. I pray that you would, Lord Jesus, charities that make a difference in people's lives, let people be generous to them, God. I'm not just praying for our local church. Bless ch charities that will make a difference in someone's life. God, I pray, Lord, that as we have a Christmas cantata and kids look all cute and sing precious songs, God, that there will be guests in the house who feel the power and presence of your spirit, God, as we celebrate. Lord, even if, oh yeah, this wasn't the time of the year you were born, I don't even care right now, God. It's when we celebrate it, that when we gather to say we are remembering the birth of Jesus Christ, 
that it would open doors to make a difference in lives and hearts and minds, Lord, that people's lives will all be able to say, I was forever changed at a Christmas service at that church. Help us in Jesus' name. Help us, God. Jesus, be the center of